If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? Hey, welcome everyone to Jesus Never Ran. Always great to be with you. Of course, this episode, as well as most of the Jesus Never Ran episodes, are sponsored by Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition. You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. And if you go to the show notes, you can get your free wellness profile by clicking the link there. That's Rise Nutrition with Angie Niska. Again, that's Rise Menominee. Rise is with a Z. It is not lost on me how amazing it is that a big part of my career is having incredible conversations with incredible people, and this week is no exception. On the show today, ally, pastor, and author of the book Queer Prophets, Greg Paul. My name is Greg Paul. I'm 62 years old. I'm a white guy. I grew up um, in a very fundamentalist home, lived that way and followed that kind of a Christian faith for a bunch of years. And uh, then in my 20s, got involved with the rhythm and blues band playing in, in bars as a way of reaching out to people who wouldn't do church stuff. And um, that led to my involvement uh, with establishing a community called Sanctuary in Toronto that welcomes people who are poor and excluded, uh, homeless folks, uh, people struggling with addictions, mental illness, psych issues, trauma issues, and it included being located in the corner of uh, one of the world's largest queer communities. So I got to know a bunch of uh, queer folks through that, and that shifted me just a little bit. Yes, shifted you so much, Greg, that you've written some books on the subject. The most recent is called Queer Prophets, and it was just a a sheer joy to read. I love it because it's not you trying to over-intellectualize anything. It's you sharing your story of how you've walked through this journey that so many people are in the midst of right now. And your story really started... From my understanding in reading Queer Prophets, it started with a man named John. Do you mind sharing just a little bit about who he was and how that started a bit of a journey of trying to understand where you stand on the issue of acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, sure. So uh, John was a guy who was probably uh, 15 years older than me. Uh, still is actually still in contact with John and he came from the same kind of background was involved in the same range of churches that I was in and uh, he and he was a really well-known youth leader camp director uh, quite a charismatic person and he was in his 30s I guess in his early to mid 30s when he really began to realize that he could no longer stuff his uh, his orientation and 
And so slowly he worked through that. And it, what it looked like originally was a, a kind of a nervous breakdown. But, um, but John uh, held on to his faith uh, through all of that. And years later, when I got involved with Sanctuary, uh, John, by this point, had become a priest, an Anglican priest, working in the same neighborhood that I was starting to work in doing outreach amongst homeless folks. And so I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to connect with John. He's part of my community, and he'll know all sorts of people in my community. And, and when he and I met, you know, I think we were both wary. He'd been badly hurt, of course, by folks who came from my kind of background and his kind of background. And I had very strong opinions about uh, whether or not it was okay to, to be gay. In fact, in my estimation, then it wasn't. And when we met, I think we expected to, to be very cautious and very polite uh, with each other and, and maybe never meet again. But it was a strange, wonderful experience. It was as if God kind of reached down and pulled away the, you know, the separating wall between us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and we kind of met heart to heart. And uh, I could see that John was a, a man who was passionate about his faith. He was a beautiful pastoral person. Uh, he really hadn't changed except that, that now he was uh, clear about his orientation. And I went away from that meeting feeling really confused thinking this is a godly person i can sense that in him his spirit is there and 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 the way he speaks about god and jesus is is just full of love and full of love for humanity and people he's caring for and but the question that kept ringing my in my ears was you know so how does that work god how can this is not language i'd use now but god how can you use this person (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's what i was thinking then and and when i stopped you know prattling on that god long enough to listen what what i heard what i felt like i heard was god saying well i use you don't i and that really gave me a twist i thought well yeah of course so that little shift began a long journey for me and then you know in later years uh, john and i reconnected again not too long ago when i was dealing with a lot of post-trauma issues of my own around death and loss, uh, multiple death and loss in our community. And John, as a, as a guy who understood grief, has been a real good caregiver for me. That's amazing. And I hear over and over how when we're talking about this, a lot of times we want to talk about a certain group of people, but that group of people isn't represented in the conversation. But anytime proximity happens, like what happened between you and John, suddenly it's person to person, or in your case, as you described it as heart to heart, which when you get that intimate, then the conversation is completely different than maybe it would be if it's just a bunch of, you know, straight people talking about how to, how to handle this. I'm convinced that proximity really is the only thing that, that really shifts people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. One thing, and I was sharing this with you before we hit record, but one thing that I I love about you from what I'm learning from your book is that when, when maybe you had that shift or maybe when you felt that foundation starting to shake a little bit, you didn't necessarily attack it from a standpoint of, oh, let's figure out what the Bible has to say. Although I'm sure as somebody who greatly appreciates and studies the Bible, you did that, but you also experientially just dive in head first. So share about some of the things that you did mm-hmm. to gain some of that proximity beyond just your relationship with John with the queer yeah. community. 
I guess the first thing I, I need to say is that I, I have always taken the Bible really, really, really seriously. And and so, what I believe the Bible had to say was a problem for me in, in this area, how to deal with people like John. But I was also, um, we had been commissioned as a missionary to do outreach in this downtown neighborhood that included all sorts of, of queer folk, gay, lesbian, bi, trans, everything, like just two-spirited folks. There was all sorts of stuff going on in my patch. And I met all these people doing outreach and got to know them, started to hang out with them. And, uh, and so those people really won my heart, I would say. Like, I, I felt I'm not talking about a people group. I'm talking about individuals who I, in some fashion, fell in love with. And I, I don't mean that in a romantic way. I just mean in a friendship way. And so it became clear to me that if I wanted really to reach out to people who were queer, uh, I needed to do that just like I was doing with street folks. I needed to do it on their patch. That's what Jesus did. He came to our patch and he wandered around uh, on our turf to, in order to meet us. And so I was doing that with street folks and I thought, well, I need to do that with, with these folks that I'm meeting who are part of the gay community. And so um, I went and I volunteered with the AIDS Committee of Toronto. And, uh, uh, you know, I think, well, I know for a fact that the volunteer coordinator at the time when I made my application thought, I'm going to give this guy two or three sessions and I'm sure he's going to wash out. Because at the time, and we're going back to the 90s now, the mid 90s, as far as I know, I was the only straight male who had ever volunteered in this organization that had 400 volunteers or something. Wow. And I was certainly the only straight male pastoral person who had ever been there. Uh, there were some straight women involved, generally speaking. It was because they had queer sons who were dying of AIDS. That was a fabulous experience because uh, all of a sudden, you know, as, as a straight white guy, Christian in the Western world, I'd always been in a position where I was very comfortable and held most of the power in any given conversation without even knowing that. And for the first time, I was in a place where, where I was the foreigner, you might say. I was kind of the dangerous guy. Now, I can remember the, one of the first meetings we had with this group of people in volunteer intake. They asked us to go around in a room and introduce ourselves. And I, you know, as I listened to, to person after person introduce themselves, I was thinking, one of these people is not like the others. <laughs> when it got to me, you know, I said, well, first thing you need to know about me is that, uh, that I'm a straight guy. And, and there was bit of a shock, but then everybody laughed and said, well, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. And I said, you know, and you need to know that, uh, that I'm married. And he says, oh, no, a breeder and uh, stuff like that. And I have kids. Um, and then I said, uh, and I'm uh, an evangelical pastor, which is how I identified then. I wouldn't know, but that's how I identified. And the room just went dead silent. You could almost feel people pushing their chairs back. But ultimately, that group welcomed me and blessed me and encouraged me and trusted me in all the ways that every church should do with any newcomer. <laughs> hmm. And it was an amazing experience. So, I, I volunteered there. I think I was there 
for six years and uh, had amazing experiences with it. I don't like to assume anything of the listeners of this podcast. And I know sometimes yeah. when we're talking about the LGBTQ plus community, even with the sheer number of letters in what I just said, sometimes it gets confusing. And so when you and I were growing up, the word queer was very much a derogatory word. And yes. it's in the title of your book, and it's a term that we're hearing more commonly now. And in the book, you do a great job of defining it. Do you mind sharing what you mean when you use the word queer? Sure. I, I, I struggled with it, to be frank, because uh, I know that not everybody who is gay, lesbian, bi, trans, etc. likes the term, and I understand why they don't. But it was the best word I could come up with that's, that is generally acceptable in, the, in that community that, uh, that kind of is a catch-all, that, that catches everybody. So when I use the word queer, I understand that not everybody likes it. I use it as a catch-all for, for everybody who would not identify as, as what normally we would call kind of straight folks, uh, cisgendered people, um, cis-oriented people, that sort of thing. Those are terms that maybe not everybody would understand, but, but straight folks. And what I sort of came to was a recollection from my youth of reading in the King James Version of what uh, I think it's Peter says that we're called to be a peculiar people. And by, by which he means we're called to be set apart. We're called to be distinct and different from the world around us. And uh, so, I, you know, that's what I offer in the introduction, just basically saying maybe you can accept the use of this term in that frame of reference that uh, that being queer is about being set apart it is about being different for a purpose and of course the the thesis of of that book really is that i i think queer folks have a prophetic function in our society at this point in history i couldn't agree anymore there's voices coming from the queer community that we desperately need to be listening to at this time in history for sure. I believe it's in the chapter where you talk about a transgender woman named Cassandra. And at the end of the chapter, you write, a theology that doesn't work in the real world in real time is no theology at all. Expand on that statement because that hit me really hard when I read it. The problem with an awful lot of our theology is that it's abstract, isn't it? That, uh, you know, it gets worked out in seminaries or it gets preached about from, from the pulpit and, and it's theoretical. It doesn't actually meet where, where people live. And I would, I would argue that if it doesn't work in real time, it can't be a theology because the God who made us works in the real time, in the real world. And he doesn't steer away from any of that stuff. So, I think where you find that your theology doesn't work in the real world, you're coming up against a dissonance that needs to be addressed. It, it needs to be worked out. There's a problem with your theology if you get to the point where you just say, oh, this actually just doesn't work. Now, you and I both know, as do most of the listeners of this podcast, that the idea of certainty has been at times in our lives very, very important. And I grew up Catholic, and then when I got involved in the evangelical church, certainty was one of the greatest parts about it because I felt as if there were answers to all these questions I had. I later found out that that wasn't necessarily the case. But I believe it's even a chapter title in the book that is, Certainty is No Friend of Faith, which 
almost seems like an oxymoron for those of us who grew up in the evangelical space. Yeah. Because I would say, if, if I was still in that space, I would say certainty is what it's all about. But you're saying it's not even a friend of faith. I think a lot of questions that people have in regard to certainty is that if there is no certainty, how can we even have faith? So as a pastor, how would you respond to that? I would say that certainty is the friend of fundamentalism right? That's, that's actually the foundation of any kind of fundamentalism, whether it's political, economic, societal, or religious. Fundamentalism says, this is the way it is, and if you don't believe the same way that I do, then you're flat out wrong, and you're probably the enemy. That's, that's the way fundamentalism of any stripe works. But doubt really is the true friend of faith, because it's, it's in doubt that we have to, we actually have to trust God. If you're convinced that you understand the way everything works, you don't have to trust God. You just say, well, this is how it works. These are the rules. I just follow the rules. But if you're not sure about something and you have to really trust, then that's the, that's the moment where you really have to put your hand in the hand of God and then step out into the darkness. And sometimes that's in big ways and sometimes that's in small ways. You know, there are times when I'm not sure that I can be really clear about what's the right course of action ahead of me. And, and I'm the kind of person for whom being right really matters. I want to do the right thing. I'm an Enneagram one, if that makes any sense to anybody out there. I want to do the right thing and I want to be sure that I'm doing the right thing. But Really, honestly, most of the time in my life, I cannot be absolutely positive. So ultimately, what I, I have to do is say, well, I think this is the best course. I'm going to choose that. And then I say, God, if, if this is the wrong thing, forgive me and please redeem my mistakes in it and turn it into something good. And honestly, I think that's what God desires of us anyway. You know, I, I don't expect my kids to be right about ab- absolutely everything. Uh, I love them even when they make mistakes. And I just trust that the mistakes can be made right. Yes, absolutely. If there's ever a way to understand that, it's certainly in reference to our kids. In that same chapter on certainty, you say, I was beginning to admit to myself that biblical arguments are usually only conclusive if you want them to be. So with that in mind, how has your view of the Bible changed? Because again, people who are coming out of the evangelical world often struggle to even pick up the Bible anymore because they just don't even know how to use it. Now it's this thing they don't really know what to do with. Yeah. So, you know, the, the phrase, the Bible is clear. <laughs> well, the Bible isn't, the Bible isn't clear. Right? Let's, let's face it. I mean, I, I think those of us who are raised in fundamentalist settings, that's the kind of thing that we heard all the time. The Bible is clear. And that was a way of, of saying that it's clear about what I believe and, and I need to be absolutely certain that I believe the right things. So, so that's really what it's about. But there's lots about the Bible that's not clear. And uh, to me, the, what they call the prohibitive passages, the half dozen passages through all scripture that have something to say about same gender sexual relationship, they were very clear to me. I thought they were definitive. But the more I studied them, the less clear they became. The more I actually looked at what they meant, what the context was, uh, you know, socially and culturally at the time, and even what the language was that was used in those passages, the less and less clear those passages became. And I would say that that was true for me in a variety of other ways as well. And so, 
what I began to to realize was was that really uh, I shouldn't be reading Scripture as some kind of code book. Yes, it contains the Old Testament law, but the most of Scripture is not supposed to be a law book that tells us do these things and doesn't matter whether you understand why or not. The Bible is a story, start to finish. And it's a story of God's incredible love for everything He's created, but especially humanity. And, and it's really the story of His relationship with, with humanity. So it begins in the garden, it ends in the city of the New Jerusalem. And when you think about it as a story, you begin to realize, and you think about how you read other stories, you begin to realize that how you understand it needs to shift a little bit. Any story that you read of is full of stuff that's obscure. It's full of stuff that doesn't necessarily make sense in the moment. It may make sense in the end, but maybe not. A good story usually has a few blind alleys in it where you, you think you know where this thing's going and then you discover you don't. And the key to understanding any story is the ending. It's the, the kind of the climax when, oh, it becomes clear, you know who murdered so-and-so <laughs> and how and why all of that stuff becomes clear in a murder mystery for instance and being a little facetious but it's like that and when you get to the ending it gives you a lot of clarity about the stuff that came earlier uh, and that would be my argument that if you're going to read scripture read it that way understand where it is that god is taking humanity uh, and understand that there's going to be lots of uh, divergent paths and lots of switchbacks and, you know, curves and turns and stuff on the road to getting there. And you'll understand Scripture an awful lot better, and you'll hold it a little, a little more loosely. Here's the amazing thing. You'll get a lot more value out of it. You know, I, I was afraid as a fundamentalist if I started to let this ironclad view of Scripture uh, go that suddenly I wouldn't value the Bible at all and it wouldn't make any sense to me. But to me, it's more the Word of God than it has ever been. Hey friends, we are going to get right back to the conversation with Greg Paul. But before that, I want to let you know of an event that's coming up on June 21st. The reason that I'm bringing it up now is because one of the featured speakers is none other than Greg Paul. The events on Eventbrite, I'll put a direct link in the show notes of this episode, but it's called Queer Prophets, a conversation about faith, sexuality, and gender. Features Greg, features Dr. Paula Stone-Williams. If you don't know Paula Stone-Williams, go back to her episode on Jesus Never Ran back in January called Call to Die. She's a transgender pastor from out in Colorado, an incredible speaker, a gazillion views on her TED Talks, just incredible. So you're not gonna wanna miss this event. In addition to the two of them, we also have Pedro Koss, who is an award-winning filmmaker. So again, Greg Paul, Paula Stone-Williams, Pedro Koss at an event on June 21st called Queer Prophets, a conversation about faith, sexuality, and gender. Here's the thing. It's free. Why would you not attend this online event? Again, the link will be in the show notes of this episode so you can hop on and be a part of this incredible event first of june all right back to the conversation speaking of switchbacks and curves you don't make a definitive argument you make a questioning about the relationship between david and jonathan Why yeah don't you share a little bit about that yeah so i mean my previous position would have been that the uh queer apologists who say well clearly david and jonathan were gay lover lovers were kind of making something up in the story 
And I thought it was pretty spurious. And I think there are instances in Scripture where that's the case. When I went back and I started to look at the language that was involved, particularly the language that Saul uses to castigate his son, Jonathan, for his relationship with David, Saul certainly sounded like he thought there was something going on between them. You know, he says, you brought shame on your mother by your relationship with David. And, and he, and the kind of the language that he uses and the language that those two men use about each other is the kind of language that, that very often lovers use and so on. So I'm not saying David and, and Jonathan had a queer relationship, but I think it's certainly possible in the, in the scope of the story, which is kind of interesting. You know, if, if that was the case, what did it mean? It's only since the 1870s or something that homosexuality, quote-unquote, has been defined as an orientation. Before that, people's view of sexuality was a lot more fluid. So who knows? Who knows what is? And I love that we can, you know, have those discussions and those conversations and not feel like we should be chastised for it because we're going against some sort of theology or whatnot. You had this great story when you spoke at a church about a man that you met who was dying of AIDS, I believe his name was Neil. And the quote that stopped me in my tracks was when you said a dying Neil might be acceptable, even touching as the presence of Christ, but a living gay Neil was not acceptable as a follower of Christ. Yeah. So that came about because I was, as I said, I was involved with the AIDS Committee of Toronto, and so Neil was one of, was, was what they called a buddy. That was the term that they used, and all that meant was that I went and I hung out with him a lot because he was lonely. People with AIDS were often shuffled off into a corner. He, his partner had died. And Neil, Neil was a really bright, intelligent man. He had been very successful in the banking community. I got to know him really well. And when he died, or just, just before he died, I had an interaction with him that was, was one of the pivotal spiritual moments of my life to this day, I would say, in which um, I won't go into the whole thing. I'm not sure, honestly, I could get through it without losing it at this point. But um, in this experience, uh, as Neil lay dying, and I was caring for him, I, I, I realized that, that he was a figure of Christ to me. And, and then uh, after I'd finished caring for him, Neil blessed me, which just ratified it. And he wasn't a Christian man, but he, he blessed me. And he blessed me specifically in the name of Jesus. And it was, it was eerie and powerful. And they were the last words I heard him say. Like it, it was, it was that kind of an experience. So I would, uh, as I was wrestling with all of this, I would tell that story to people in churches sometimes. Um, and I've been asked to speak at this church about Romans chapter one and about same gender relationship. And they wanted me to come and explain why it was wrong and everything. And so as part of that sermon, I, I told my story about Neil. And I gave uh, a teaching around that passage that was, a lot more nuanced and to be honest a lot more equivocal probably <laughs> than they wanted to hear now initially the congregation was very receptive and the stuff that i heard after would, was was positive which surprised me a bit but by the time i got home one or two people in the congregation had got a hold of the elders and had freaked right out on them about what i was saying about neil 
uh, not so much about Neil, but but about queer folks. And uh, it was the first time I'd had a really negative reaction to telling this story about Neil. And so what I realized was that um, they were quite comfortable with me telling this story about Neil, who conveniently had died and didn't have to be dealt with anymore. As long as the story about Neil was not requiring them to rethink their convictions about about queer folks. And if it got to that point, they didn't want to hear about Neil anymore. Uh, so that's why I said, you know, a dying Neil as a picture of, of Christ who blessed me was something that people could get all emotional about it, and they did. People would come to me with tears in their eyes. Uh, people could get emotional about it and think that was a beautiful story. But when it meant they had to, to think about the possibility that a living, breathing meal might want to come and join their congregation in a full fashion, that was the end. So I, I heard that kind of thing over and over. Now, speaking of that, as the pastor of a community yourself, how was this transition on the community? Because I know sometimes that gets pretty hairy when we want to change our thought process specifically in this area. Yeah, so we had a big advantage in that we didn't have a long church history. We had started the thing together, and from the beginning, we'd had people who were queer folk and people struggling with addictions, mental illness, a variety of other things that, that, that you wouldn't normally find right at the core of a church. So our theological boundaries, let's say, were being expanded uh, and tested all the time anyway. So, so we have this kind of pattern. But even so, we, we never really explicitly said, you know, this is, a, this is an affirming church. I, for one, was not able to say that until the latter part of 2012. Personally, as a pastor, I could not say that. Uh, before that, I wasn't able to, to marry people who were, couldn't bring myself to do that according to my convictions. We loved people who were queer without being able to affirm them, really. And here's the amazing and truly gracious part was not us straight folks, but it was the queer people who were part of our congregation who, knowing that, chose to love us straight people who could not wholeheartedly accept them. That was the really powerful expression of grace. And it was because of people like that and people that I loved that I kept searching for better answers. And I found this growing dissonance. How is it that somebody who is supposedly wrong can be more loving, more accepting, more gracious, more godly than somebody who holds hard to the, to the convictions about this stuff? As a guy who could not affirm people, I mean, I hired people who were queer on our staff. I did everything that you could possibly to go as far as possible. But at the end of the day, for me, the dividing line was, no, actually, I, I can't marry you because I didn't think that was biblical marriage. But even that, I realized, okay, there's a dissonance here. How can I treat these people I love and set up this boundary, which means that it has to mean that they are less than me? even though I'm just as much of a sinner, quote-unquote, as they are. How does this work? And it just didn't make sense to me. For the people who are wrestling with this conversation mm. right now, people who are in the space that you were at a number of years ago, what are some practical steps forward? People who are maybe in a church that isn't affirming, but they're really wrestling with that 
in their heart. They're listening to this podcast, which means something. What are some practical steps forward that a person like that can take to ultimately go on that journey? Yeah. So I think the first thing goes right back to where we started. It's proximity. So the first and most important thing is, is to, to get close to people who are queer, if you are not, and hang out with them and listen to them. Listen to them. Don't tell them what they need to think or argue with them about stuff. Listen to them. Listen to what they think. Listen to what they feel. Allow those people to win your hearts. If God loves those, those people, then you should do. It's <laughs> pretty simple, isn't it? Um, and, and when you really love people, then, then you start to change your way of thinking. And so to me, that's the first and foremost thing. And, uh, and to me, the other part of it really was trying to go back to Scripture and read it with, with fresh eyes. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is no male nor female. Uh, there isn't any slave or free man. We're, we're all the same in Christ. If there's no male or female, he doesn't say that male and female are equal. He says there is no male and female. What's the implication of that? Maybe that means that the end of the redemptive agenda is that none of these distinctions matter, that, that distinctions of, of gender don't matter, distinctions of ethnicity or uh, social position don't matter. And if that's the case, if that's the end of the redemptive agenda, should not we be living towards that now? Do our best to live the kingdom now, rather than continuing to live the curse. Special thanks to Greg Paul for being on the show this week. What an incredible conversation. What an incredible human being. Make sure that you reach out and get his book. I'll put a link in the show notes to Queer Profits to the book. And of course, don't forget about the event that's coming up on the 21st of this month called Queer Profits with Greg, with Paula Stone Williams, and with filmmaker Pedro Koss. Again, that's the 21st at 7 p.m. Direct link in the show notes of this episode. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it. It's called Following on Apple Podcasts now. You can write us a review and give it a five-star rating. Till next week, keep walking. Keep walking.